please join me in today's scripture reading found in John 21, 4 through 19. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you wherever you do not want to go. This he said to show that by what, by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. My name is Andrew Goizueta. I'm the Reform University Fellowship Campus Minister at Davidson College. Uh, It's good to be back here at North North Cross with you all, and I just want to thank you all for the opportunity uh, to to preach, uh, to share God's Word. Um, I'm joined here with my wife, Amanda, and our kids, Emma and Cora, who are back in the back, and also our intern, Mary Neal Lucas. But yeah, like I said, it's a joy to be back here at North Cross. And I just want to take this opportunity to thank you all as a church for supporting this vital ministry to college students just down the road. Um, This semester has has been great so far. We've seen a lot of growth, a lot of uh, new students coming and checking out RUF and getting involved. Um, It's also been a difficult semester. One of our student leaders had a pretty terrible accident uh, before the semester began. during an orientation event. And I know that a number of y'all have been praying for this student, and I just wanna thank you for those prayers. He needs them. Um, He's currently in rehab, uh, trying to heal from his injury, and is is making some progress. So just wanted to encourage you in that. Thank you for those prayers, and please keep praying for Danny, uh, is his name. Uh, Before we turn our attention to God's word, I would actually invite us all to go to him now in prayer. So would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, as we uh, come to your word this morning, we ask for your help. Would you help us to bring our whole selves to you? Would you open up our hearts and minister your gospel to us? And Lord, even as we 
bring our whole selves to you. Um, we bring our cares to you. Uh, the cares of this church, uh, the, the ministries of this church, the missionaries of this church, we ask that your hand would be upon them. Lord, we lift up uh, Hudson uh, with Seed Sports Ministries at Joe Gibbs Racing. Pray that your kingdom would come there as it is in heaven. Uh, Lord, we think of, of Pat Andrews and her work with the uh, Crisis Pregnancy Center of Lake Norman and ask that that would be a, a place of hope and healing. Uh, for, for women. Um, Lord, we pray for the, the prayer triads, uh, the life groups that meet on a regular basis here. Um, Lord, would you draw us nearer to you through those opportunities? Lord, for those of us who feel busy and rushed and hurried, would you help us to rest? Lord, for those of us who are maybe struggling to stay motivated to even just put one foot in front of the other, whether that's at work or at home or in ministry, would you, Lord, be our strength and our motivation and help us to labor unto you and not unto men? For those who are suffering, Lord, would you comfort them? Comfort them through your people, through fellowship, through your promises, the good and true promises of your word. Lord, we thank you for, for Clyde and his family and their service to this church. Uh, we pray that you would protect them as they travel and visit family and that you would give them strength and perseverance. We lift up uh, the pastoral church here and ask that you would send not a perfect pastor, but a faithful pastor. Uh, a shepherd teacher who would minister your gospel out of love for you and love for these, your people. And Lord, as we uh, think beyond our congregation, this congregation, and think of our country, we lift, we lift up our country to you. Um, as elections come around the corner, we pray that you would help us to trust your providence. We ask that you would um, put... The, the folks in office that you would have in office and that you would help all of our elected officials uh, to lead in a way that honors you. So would you give them godly wisdom uh, from our president all the way down to local representatives? And Father, we, we think even wider still and broader still and we continue to lift up um, our world. It is hurting and in need of a savior. And we especially think of the conflict still over in Ukraine and pray that you would bring an end uh, to the fighting, that you would bring peace where there currently is no peace. And Lord, as we do turn our attention to your word, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us right now, that you would speak powerfully to us. And we ask these things in confidence because we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be spending some time this morning in John chapter 21, the passage that was just read. Um, we're at the end of John's gospel, so we're, we're coming in at the very end. And just to bring us all up to speed, Jesus has already been crucified. He's been buried in that tomb in Jerusalem where he lay for three days. And on the third day, he rose from the dead to new life. And he appeared 
to uh, many disciples in Jerusalem over several days. But our story begins more than one week later, more than a week after all of that. We're no longer down in Jerusalem, but now we're a couple days journey north in Galilee. And our story begins after Jesus' disciples have just had an awful night of fishing. They've caught nothing. Now, I don't know if Clyde does this when he preaches, but occasionally I, I like to leave the main point of my sermon, <clears throat> excuse me, until the very end. I am not going to do that this morning. I think that the, the main message, the, the big idea is just too important to miss. I'm too excited to share it with you, honestly. And you may have already gathered it from the children's message that, Hud, that Hudson gave. But the, the big idea, the main message of this morning's passage is that God's grace is bigger than our biggest failures. God's grace is bigger than our biggest failures. I'd argue that's the message of all of Scripture in general, but it's also the message of this passage, this story in particular. And so as we think about God's grace that's bigger than our biggest failures, I want to ask you, what's the worst thing you've done this week? What's the worst thing you've done this week? Maybe it was that harsh or sharp word spoken out of anger or frustration to a child or a parent or a spouse. Maybe it was that website that you visited that you knew you had no business visiting. Maybe it was that little bit of gossip or slander that you shared, that you spoke to highlight someone else's mistake, someone else's failure, rather than covering over them out of love. What's the worst thing you've done this week? Maybe you're here, maybe you're thinking, honestly, I've had a pretty good week. I haven't done any of those things. I'm all right, right? Well, what's the worst thing you've done this past month? Or this past year? Or what's the worst thing you've done in your entire life? Take a second and think about it. If you've read any of the Gospels, you already know Peter's biggest failure. You already know the worst thing that he ever did in his life. It was denying Jesus, his friend, his teacher, his Lord, his Savior, denying him three times. Just mere hours after promising Jesus over dinner that he wouldn't. After promising Jesus he would go with him all the way to the end, even if it cost him his life he still denied him three times. You and I, we may, have, we may have failed pretty spectacularly this week or this month or in our lives, but we haven't failed quite like this. And yet, and yet, consider what Jesus says to Peter at the end of our passage in verse 19. At the very end, he says two of the most healing words he could say to Peter. He says, follow me. Follow me. Jesus does not discard Peter. He doesn't cast Peter away. Rather, he actually beckons Peter back to himself. Come, follow me. Because God's grace is bigger than Peter's 
biggest failure. And if that's true, then God's grace is bigger than your biggest failure too, and my biggest failure too. And what I want us to see this morning is that big, awesome grace, it comes to us in three ways. Through the grace of presence, the grace of place, and the grace of persistence. So first, let's consider the grace of presence. Y'all notice how in movies and TV shows and literature that a lot of times the main character, uh, the protagonist, will have something of like a trademark calling card. These are some of the most famous characters that we think of, right? Elementary, my dear Watson. We all know who that is. Or I'll be Bach. Don't have a great Austrian accent, but <laughs> you still know who I'm talking about, right? Or, for, especially for the younger folks in the crowd, to infinity and beyond. We, know, we all know these characters by their trademark calling card. And did you know that Jesus has a trademark calling card, too? It's right there in our passage. Look, look back at verses 4 through 8 with me. Um, it, the story begins, as the day was starting, as morning was coming, Jesus stood on the shore, yet his disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. And then in verse 5, he says to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And here it is. See if you can tell what his trademark calling card is. In verse 6, Jesus said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Did you see his, his calling card? Did you catch it? It's right there. Um, at the beginning of Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 5, Jesus calls his first disciples by instructing them in how to fish after they've caught nothing and providing this miraculous catch of fish. That's how he reached out to the disciples to begin with, and here he is doing it the exact same way. It's his calling card, right? And so how do the disciples respond? Look, look how John responds, the beloved disciple, in verse 7. Something clicks in his head, and he immediately says to Peter, Look, it is the Lord. He gets it. And then for Peter, um, it's, it's more like something kind of snaps in his head. Because look what Peter does in verse 7. When John says, It's the Lord, he puts on his outer garment, for he, he didn't have it on, he was stripped for work, and then he threw himself in the sea. He's so overwhelmed and overcome. It like overloads his, you know, circuitry. And he doesn't know what to do, but he knows he needs to be with, with Jesus. He throws on some extra clothes and jumps in the sea out towards Jesus. He's so overcome with emotion. Brothers and sisters, have you, like Peter, encountered Jesus' trademark calling card? Have you heard Jesus' calling card? Have you experienced this overwhelming grace of Jesus' presence? If you've ever experienced genuine, loving Christian community, the answer is yes. You have. Because Jesus promised, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You have felt the grace of his presence 
in those moments of, of genuine, sweet Christian fellowship? Or have you ever opened up God's word and really allowed it to penetrate your heart and mind and soul? Have you ever allowed his word to open you up? Have you ever saturated yourself in God's word? Then you've also encountered Jesus' presence. No one was more saturated in the word of God than Jesus. It was his bread. It was his food. It was his, his sustenance. And as the writer uh, to, he- to the Hebrew says, the word of God is living and active. Why is that? It's because Jesus is living and active through his word. And so as you have internalized God's word and let it sink deep down into your heart, you've actually internalized Christ. The word become flesh. How about this? Have you ever offered up your innermost desires or fears or shame to the Lord in prayer? Do you know that the scriptures talk about prayer as if it's incense? The smoke that rises to God, that's, that's in his very presence. In Revelation, the vision that, that God gives to John, he sees these bowls filled with incense, which the Bible says are the prayers of the saints. Your desires, your longings, your fears, your confessions, in the very presence of the risen Lord Jesus, there's an extension of you, your prayers already, in his presence, the grace of his presence? Or have you ever participated in the sacraments? Have you ever fed on the body and blood of Jesus? Have you been baptized into his name? If so, you've also experienced the grace of his presence. All of these things, Christian fellowship, the scriptures, prayer, the sacraments, these are all means of grace because they're ministering to us Jesus' presence. Avail yourself of Jesus' presence through these means. This is the grace of his presence. Listen and respond to his calling card on your life. What about the grace of place? Look with me at the next chunk of text from verses 9 through 14. And as we look over this section of the story, I want to invite you to experience the sights and even the smells through Peter's eyes and nose. So look back over verses 9 through 14, and just to kind of, again, set the scene, it's dark out. You can hardly see. Day is just breaking, is what verse 4 told us. And in verse 9, the disciples, when they get on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with some fish laid on it. Jesus is cooking them breakfast. So Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And verse 11 says, Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have, have breakfast. None of them dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Okay, again, you're Peter, right? So 
Try to look at this and try to, try, to, try to take in the sights and smells as if you're Peter, right? When was the last time you were around a charcoal fire? When was the last time that Jesus was breaking bread and serving you a meal? It was the very same night that you denied him, right? You, you, you denied him after promising you would go with him to the end. And what, what's that smell? Yeah, that's the smell of a charcoal fire. Now, for, for you and I, like, if, if we come across a charcoal fire, if, if we get that smell in our nose, what does that remind us of? Like, Independence Day, right? Like, July 4th, celebrating, you know, our country's independence around family and friends. Not so for Peter. For Peter, the smell of a charcoal fire is the smell of failure. Because it was around another charcoal fire that Peter denied Jesus three times. And you know, they say that smell is the strongest of our senses. And so for Peter, while his body is off the shore of Galilee, his mind and his heart and his spirit, they are back in Jerusalem, or in that courtyard of the high priest, around that other charcoal fire. And so I want to ask you, what does failure smell like for you? Maybe it's a certain type of cologne or perfume. Maybe it's the, the, the distinct smell of your childhood home or a particular room in your childhood home. Maybe it's the smell of a dive bar, cigarettes, and stale beer. Maybe it's the smell of a high school gym or a locker room. What's the smell of failure for you? For me, the smell of failure is rubber. Not just any rubber, but the very like, specific type of rubber that's in like commercial buildings on the stairs, on those concrete stairs in commercial buildings, the, the, the rubber coating that has like those like Lego little like bumps on it. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Why does that remind me of failure? Well, my junior year at Davidson, I lived one floor below a girl that I had a crush on. We had met in RUF, actually, and one night, I mustered up the courage to go and ask her out. And just so you know where this story is going, my wife Amanda did not go to Davidson. <laughs> so I go out of my room, I walk down the, the hall, I go into the stairwell, right? And as I open the door and walk into the stairwell, I get hit with this really awful, distinct smell of rubber. You see, our dorm had just been renovated the year before, so like we were one of the first classes, first years to, to live in there, and the, the stairwell was still filled with those fumes coming off those rubber steps. And so I, I walked up the steps, you know, to her floor. I went and reached for the door, put my hand on the door, and I got way too nervous. I was like, oh, no, I can't do this. I chickened out. And so I actually went back down the stairs to, my, to the door to my hall, and as I went to go back onto my floor, I'm like, Andrew, you can't, you can't go back. You gotta, you gotta see this through. And I must have made that flight of stairs probably like two or three times, right? 
until eventually I was getting kind of lightheaded from the, <laughs> from the fumes. And so I was just thinking, you know, just very like logically and strictly, you got it, you got to go do this because you got to get out of this stairwell. So I get out of the stairwell, walk down the, f- down the hall, knock on her door. She answers. I ask her out, and she turns me down. <laughs> and so then, with my head hung low, I got to go back to those stinking stairs, right? Get hit with that smell again, and walk back down to my dorm for kind of a sad, regretful evening. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's not really, like, moral failure, right? Like, that's not failure like Peter's failure, which is true, but I certainly experienced it as a failure. It it was a social failure. It was, for me, a failure of, like, attractability or desirability, right? And so since then, whenever I encountered that smell, that rubber smell, I'd be reminded of my failure. I'd be reminded of that evening. And that that was true for years. It would just keep bringing me back to that, that evening when I got rejected. Until, until about three years ago, a little more than three years ago, when I came back to Davidson as the campus minister now for RUF. And wouldn't you know it, the same rubber steps that were in our dorm were also in the student union. And the student union is where we have all of our RUF meetings. The difference as a campus minister was that when I would go on, say, Tuesday nights to large group and have to go up those stairs and smell that rubber smell, now I have my wife Amanda by my side. See, she would come to help me set up for large group. And we would go up and down those stairs together. And you know, that smell stopped bothering me. It really did. I don't associate it with failure anymore. In a sense, the Lord, in his providence, has redeemed that smell for me. And the Lord is doing something similar with Peter in bringing him back to that charcoal fire that place of failure, to redeem that memory for him, to heal him of his guilt and shame and regret in denying his Lord and Savior three times. And y'all, the Lord is inviting you back to those places of deep failure and regret so that he might heal those parts of your story for you. Now, you might be thinking, well, it's not practical for me to physically go back to my childhood home or to my high school or whatever that place of failure is in your past. And I'll grant that. But what you can do when, when going physically to those places is impossible, what you can do is you can invite and welcome Jesus into those hard parts of your story by inviting and welcoming a trusted brother or sister in Christ into those hard parts of your story. Whether that's a spouse, whether that's a a, a friend, maybe a Christian counselor, a pastor, an elder, when you invite that person into your story, when you tell that story of failure in vivid detail, 
you are allowing and inviting Jesus to come and heal and redeem that part of your story. He can redeem that memory for you. And that is the grace of place. So we've seen the grace of presence, seen the grace of place. Now, what's the grace of persistence? Do you notice that the, towards the end of our story, in verses 15 and following, Jesus asks Peter three times if Peter loves him. Three times. So, and three times Peter says he does love him. And so, and so when Peter affirms his love for Jesus three times, three times Jesus, one for each of Peter's denials, by the way, three times Peter, or Jesus, excuse me, Jesus restores Peter to his ministry calling. He says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. This is the grace of Jesus' persistence in Peter's life. Now, let me pause and ask you this question. As you read this story or heard this story read and, and, you, and you heard about Jesus' persistence, did anyone here feel like a little bit on edge for Peter? Like maybe a little bit nervous? Did anyone feel like Jesus maybe was grilling Peter? Like just kind of going after him? How about when you heard verse 17 read, which says, Peter was grieved because Jesus said to him the third time, do you love me? Anyone a little bit uncomfortable with that? Like Jesus inflicting this kind of grief and pain in Peter's heart? I did. I felt that way. I felt for Peter. Certainly the first several times I read this passage, I felt that way. Until I realized that, you know, Jesus knows exactly what Peter needs. Imagine what might have been going through Peter's head ever since that rooster crowed twice. Imagine some of Peter's self-talk. It could not have been very positive or affirming. You know, I imagine he probably started to see himself as the worst disciple. I mean, Judas kind of had the title for that, right? Judas betrayed Jesus, right? So clearly he's the, the worst disciple, right? But Judas isn't here anymore. I guess that leaves me, Peter, the worst disciple. I didn't deny him, but I betrayed him. I didn't, I didn't betray him, but I denied him three times. I imagine that Peter was probably wrestling with some of this, this really like condemning uh, negative self-talk. And so in steps Jesus with his persistent questioning to grieve Peter, to grieve him not to condemn or destroy him, but to heal and restore him. Jesus knows there's this huge difference between worldly grief and godly grief. You know, Paul actually lays it out for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where he says that worldly grief produces death, but godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. That's what Jesus is after. You see, Judas's story, Judas's life, ended in worldly grief leading to death and despair. Jesus wanted Peter to experience a different type of grief, grief, 
a grief leading to salvation, everlasting life. See, Jesus is calling Peter off of that road, that path that Judas took, and onto a new road and a new path. And yes, he does cause grief. He does inflict pain. But it's the pain that comes from a surgeon whose intent is to heal you. The only reason a surgeon inflicts pain is to cut away that which is causing harm and death in order to lead to fuller life. And so in this passage, Jesus is acting as a field surgeon. Peter's this soldier who's just stepped on this landmine of failure, this colossal failure. And he has survived, but just barely. And, you know, imagine there's all sorts of regret shrapnel all over Peter's heart. And so Jesus has to come pull Peter off the field and start to dig out those pieces of regret shrapnel. And Peter is just overcome with pain. He can't take it anymore. And just as Jesus starts to lose Peter, it's like Jesus grabs him, puts his hands on his face, looks him squarely in the eye, and says, stay with me, soldier. Stay with me. Stay with me. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? The only wounds that Jesus ever inflicts on his servants are healing wounds. The only grief that he allows his children to suffer is saving grief. Grief that produces repentance that leads to salvation without any regret. Jesus doesn't want Peter to have any regret. This is exactly what he's after in Peter's life, and he's, it's what Jesus is after in our life. It's the grace of Jesus' persistence. And before we close, I, I just want to highlight one other thing. There's another aspect to the grace of persistence. It begins with Jesus' persistence, but look what it leads to. It leads to Peter's persistence as well. You know, the last two verses, 18 and 19, they are hard verses. Did you notice, like, Jesus finishes after saying, you know, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. In verse 18, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another's going to dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And as if that wasn't kind of sobering enough, verse 19 says, This he said to show by what kind of death he would glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. At face value, those two verses kind of feel like a wet blanket. Like Jesus is predicting the persecution that Peter's going to experience that's ultimately going to result in his death. How's that for a happy ending? Right? But what we have to see is that these last two verses are not a wet blanket. But they're this amazing promise of Peter's persistence. Did you catch it? Look again at verse 19. After Jesus predicts, you know, Peter's persecution, his death, the narrator says, this was to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Don't miss the promise there. 
Jesus is promising Peter's death. Peter the denier, right? He is promising Peter's death is going to glorify God. In other words, he's promising that Peter's story is going to end well. Imagine, imagine being Peter and hearing that promise from Jesus' own lips, right? That you're going to make it, that you're going to persevere to the end, that your death, even in your death, you are going to glorify me. There are some days where I am convinced that I have that promise over my life. I'm resting in that promise. I know that my life's going to end well, that Jesus has got me. I, I, I believe his promise that he would give his people eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand, Jesus said. There are days when I believe that deep down in my core, but then there are other days when I'm not so sure. I'm, I'm just being honest. There are days when life and ministry just seem way more like a grind than a pleasure or a delight. There are days where I don't want to pray or read my Bible. There are days where sin and temptation just are, are crouching at the door. And as someone in full-time ministry, there are days when I see a headline and yet another celebrity pastor has had moral failure that's made shipwreck, shipwreck of their life and of their church. On those days, I don't know if I have that promise. You know, I know what kind of day Peter was having before Jesus showed up. And it wasn't the same kind of day after Jesus showed up. Amen? Amen. Look, if you are in Christ, if you're united to him by faith, then a new day has dawned. You are no longer bound by your failures, no matter how colossal they are. You are bound by God's grace. The grace of presence that calls out to you, the grace of place that, that heals and redeems your story, and the grace of persistence that will not let you go. It won't. But if you're not in Christ, if you're not joined to him by faith, then would you hear his voice calling out to you today? And his voice says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Peter heard that voice and opened that door. You all have just heard that voice too. Would you open the door as well? Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, I pray for those in this room who have heard your voice and want to open up that door but don't know how. Will you rush into them right now and overwhelm them with your powerful grace that, that is bigger than their failures? And Holy Spirit, would you comfort and convince all of us, every last one of us in this room, with your presence and your persistence. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.